everybody welcome back to exploring the lord of the rings my name is Corey olson the tolkien professor and tonight is session number 189 of exploring the lord of the rings uh and probably our antepenultimate episode uh session on um uh council of elrond we're getting there uh we have about uh two and a third slides left in the Council of Elrond. Uh, tonight, however, we are going to talk about Frodo's choice. You will remember I kind of postponed that. I know it was the Antipenultimate episode last time, too. <laughs> but, you know, plans change. Um, because we... Um, uh, we're, 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 there's a lot still to talk about in that last slide, but we'll see. We'll see how we do. We're, we're the last slide, you know, the very last slide of all should, I'm sure, be quite short. So, exactly as JJ says, last week was the pseudo antipenultimate episode. Clearly, uh, <laughs> clearly, um, <laughs> yeah. Fourth Thoughtless is wondering if we finally hit Zeno's chapter. Um, <laughs> it only seems that way. Fourth Thoughtless, I think. I think we're actually going to get to the end at some point. But um, um, but yes, we're going to talk about Frodo's longing to stay with Bilbo, Captain Mo. I, I was debating... So I'm jumping straight back into the text here. Um, well, uh, hang on. First, I'm going to announce. Uh, I almost forgot my announcements. I'm so eager to jump in. Just one quick thing, just a reminder. Mythmoot is coming up soon. We're only a couple weeks away from Mythmoot. And there is uh, a PDF version of the schedule that's up. We're building the, the full schedule for our participants with the links and everything for all the sessions and everything. Um, but if you want to see at a glance the, the daily schedule uh, at Mythmoot, I know some people are, you know, only, are only able to come for like one or two of the days and want to kind of figure that out. Um, so you can see, um, you can see there uh, on our MythMood page uh, the full schedule. So just wanted to make sure to share that with people. Um, and remember, if you can't come in, we are meeting in person, which is going to be awesome. And we've got over fifty people coming in person, um, which is what I was uh, what I was hoping for. Um, so that's I'm so excited to see folks again. Uh, oh, it's going to be so wonderful to do an in-person moot again. Um, but it's also going to be really fun to connect with all the folks who are joining us uh, 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 remotely as well. So we're going to have, um, uh, you know, we're going to have a bunch of people who are uh, attending um, uh, remotely through Moot Hub and Mootcast. Remember, Mootcast is if you, is it, it's like just to attend the sessions and you get an archived recording of the session. So Mootcast is great if you're not sure you're going to be able to attend live during the weekend, but you want want to make sure not to you know miss any of the uh the fun talks and sessions and stuff so um that's what mootcast is oriented for and moot hub is designed to be the full remote synchronous experience to be taking part in the whole week it's as we'll, we'll try to make it as close to possible you know as if you were there with us um so um anyway so that is um um that's what we're looking forward to here um so moot hub mootcast and then um uh our live regist our in-person registration you can find all those registration options um and you can come for the whole weekend or just one day or whatever when 
we're, we'd be delighted to see you for as much time as, as you can make it. Um, so that is on the uh, website there, uh, signumuniversity.org slash mythmoot. Um, uh, it is going to be so much fun. Can't wait to see folks again. Um, so, um, and yes, Cam Lost, Buckeye Moot is still in the works for the future. We're, 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 uh, we're, we're getting there. We're going to try to find, uh, f- try to find a date and place and, and, and figure that out. But yeah, um, we're, we're kind of, we're focused on Myth Moot right now. After Myth Moot, we're going to begin in earnest the planning of our, uh, our regional moot, um, cycle, uh, this coming year, uh, which is going to be, I'm so excited to get back to uh, traveling around and, and uh, meeting up with folks again uh, this time. So anyway, all right. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Buckeye Moot, Sir House. Yes, uh, uh, in Ohio. Uh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that's it. Um, Pacific Northwest. Oh, Mary, I would love to do the Pacific Northwest. That's been one of my goals for a while is to have uh, uh, to have a moot uh, up in like, you know, Seattle area, you know, somewhere somewhere in the, you know, like Portland to Vancouver uh, corridor up there. Um, That would be uh, that would be a lot of fun. I've I've wanted to do that for a while. So hoping we can uh, we can we can we can make that happen. Um, But anyway. Uh, and certainly going to plan to to reboot some of the others, but we'll talk more about the regional moots uh, when we uh, when we get to that point and we start start working out a calendar. Um, anyway, all right, uh, let us now jump back into the text. So, the big question that I was I don't want to say avoiding, but I was pushing back, and the reason I was pushing it back, uh, the reason I was I was sort of going around it last time um, was not because I'm reluctant to talk about it, but because I didn't want to rush it because uh, it's a big deal and I didn't want to tackle it with five minutes left in, in our discussion last time. Um, we were looking, of course, at Frodo's reaction. First is his self-consciousness glancing around, right? Because he thinks other people are looking at him. Um, then this great dread that we discussed for a while, um, as if he were waiting for the pronouncement of some doom that he had long foreseen and vainly hoped might after all never be spoken. And again, the thing that I would emphasize there, that sense of dread. Remember, we last time we were um, speculating that the difference between fear and dread is certainty, right? As seems to be one of the one of the primary elements. Like dread is what you feel of something you 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 feel sure you can't avoid. Um, uh, if you're afraid of something, you might run away and perhaps escape. Um, but if you have dread, it's there's there's something uh, inevitable uh, about dread, um, and and that certainly seems to fit what Frodo is what, what what is being described of Frodo, right? That experience of waiting for the pronouncement of doom, right? Like you're the prisoner in the dock waiting for the judge to pass sentence, right? There's, there's, there's dread there. Like it's, it's not a question. It's no longer a question of, you know, are you going to be found guilty or not guilty, right? It's just a question of what doom is going to be set. Um, um, vainly hoped might after all never be spoken. Um, but I, the thing that I would emphasize there is not only that sense of inevitability, but also the sense of passivity that, um, uh, that sense of um, uh, that sense of um, being victim, right? He's not making the call there. 
he is waiting for a doom to be spoken on him, right? A doom to be pronounced over him. Um, and that I think is really important. And that seems to be what his dread is about, right? And that segues to the overwhelming longing to rest and remain at peace by Bilbo's side in Rivendell, which fills all his heart. And Tom, I absolutely agree. I was thinking of that passage too. Um, the response that we see from Frodo when he volunteers, right? And remember that this is in response to his volunteering. When he says that he will take the ring and guard it, right? Um, uh, and that he will, and that, you know, he, he agrees to, and remember Gandalf is surprised, right? Gandalf responds with pleasure and delight, um, saying that, you know, that he didn't expect such a response even from Frodo, right? And I love that even from Frodo, right? Even from you. Um, meaning he expected a lot from Frodo, but even from Frodo, he didn't expect that. Um, the, the sort of the, the steadiness, uh, and, um, uh, willingness with which Frodo took it on himself there in, in, in Bag End. Um, so by the way, footnote, it's possible, of course, um, to hear an echo of that, like the doom, right. Um, that had long, he had long, like, there's a reason he's long for seeing this doom because he already signed up for it. Right. So you could say that his agency is also sort of involved here. Um, that part of what he's experiencing in that dread, right. Is that he volunteered for this, not really fully understanding what he was volunteering for. It's only here in the council that he's come to understand what bearing the ring means, right? Um, what he signed up for at Bag End was to take the ring and guard it um, and to bring it to Rivendell. And that there was at least a part of him that genuinely thought and believed that he was done when he got to Rivendell, right? That that was that he had finished the job at that point. But it's clear that this, you know, that throughout this conversation, you know, throughout the council here today, as, you know, these questions have come for like, who can carry the ring? And as um, Elrond and Gandalf have continued to kind of pound on this point, nobody is safe with the ring, right? We can't, you know, here, um, remember also Frodo's words in Bag End, like that he ho he says to Gandalf that he hoped that he shall find some other, some other better uh, keeper soon, right? Um he takes the ring in Bag End in the hope that Gandalf is going to find somebody more qualified. If, you know, sooner rather than later, right? For now, he'll, he takes responsibility for it, right? And he, um, uh, and he, he, you know, moves forward with it. But um, he, um, that's not, um, uh, that's not, course the end of the story and it's not what he learns here in Rivendell here that whole concept of like I hope you shall find some some other better keeper soon has been completely retextualized recontextualized right who who is who is better who could be better um a stronger person a wiser person but he's just heard Elrond and Gandalf both say that's not the move in fact that's uniquely dangerous the stronger and wiser the person who takes the ring, the more peril that person and through that person the rest of the world is in, right? Um, I suspect 
both in the looking out of the corner of his eyes at other people to see if they're looking at him and in the dread that he is feeling and that sense of the pronouncement of doom. Um, I think that Frodo has been reading Elrond's implications. I think that he got the small hands do them because they must reference. I think he's been looking down at his own hands and realizing that he has some of the smallest hands in the room. Um, so I, I, I think that that's, you know, the... And one, one of the things that he's wrestling with here is that for all that he said, some other better keeper, and for all that he maybe partially believed or convinced himself that his only job was to keep the ring safe and bring it to Rivendell, that even at the time, um, he knew, in his heart he knew that he was in this for the long haul. And that this, remember, his conviction or his dread it wasn't the same kind of dread. It wasn't a great dread that fell upon him, right? But that um, fear, perhaps, that his journey was going to be a there with no back again, right? And now, goodness, after all that he's heard and learned here at the council, that seems by far the most likely outcome, right, is that kind of a one-way journey. Now he understands much better what it means, and now he knows, well, shoot, given the unusual set of qualifications that seem to be required for the ring bearer, there isn't another better keeper. And maybe even he's been hanging out with Gandalf long enough to also be able to pick up on the whole trend of providence thing that Gandalf himself has been pointing to, right? Um, and even if he doesn't recall explicitly um, Gandalf's implications of that, back in Bag End, right? You were meant to have it. And that may be a comforting thought. Or that thought may fill you with a great dread, in fact, right? Which seems to be one of the outcomes uh, of that thought, right? Um, certainly at this particular moment. But, Tom, coming back to your comment here, the, uh, none of those things from Bag End were the, were the passages that you talked about. The response, the feeling that Frodo has back when he volunteers in Bag End is a, is a longing for, for Bilbo. Um, Tom thoughtfully quoted it for me here. He did not tell Gandalf, but as he was speaking, a great desire to follow Bilbo flamed up in his heart, to follow Bilbo and perhaps even to find him again. But it was so, str it was so strong that it overcame his fear. He could almost have run out then and there and then down the road without his hat, as Bilbo had done on a similar morning long ago. Um, that desire for Bilbo was associated the first time with his taking of the ring, his volunteering. But it was a response to his taking of the ring, to his choice, right? And the parallel with Bilbo, the it's a desire, and it's a desire to go to go and to seek and to find Bilbo. The desire that fills his heart spontaneously at that point, that he doesn't tell Gandalf about, right? This great desire that wells up in his heart is a desire which is ultimately impelling him out in exactly the direction that he is supposed to go. It is pushing him in the direction of the quest, right? Out the door, down the path, and towards Rivendell, just like Bilbo long ago, right? To find Bilbo. Who is at Rivendell? He doesn't know for sure that he's at Rivendell, but um, uh, it, um, 
it uh, it it needs no Oedipus to guess that that might be the case, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I but but again, it's it's in line, right? Here, he knows what he should do. He knows what he's feels like he's supposed to do. And he's feeling it. He's feeling that dread. He's feeling it like a, a, a sentence that's being pronounced right over him. And the overwhelming longing that emer- for Bilbo that emerges here is unlike that one that Tom quoted for us from Bag End um, is pushing in the opposite direction of the quest. Right. Um, it is. If he follows that impulse, he will be resisting the nudgings of providence, the call, the call that he felt. Here's the other thing that I think of. And Tom, I'm so glad you quoted that because I was going to be trying to quote that from memory here. So I'm glad you quoted it and spared me messing it up. Um, Remember also another, a third scene, a third parallel, right? So we've got this scene here in Council of Elrond, the scene when Frodo takes the ring and then feels that great desire to go follow in Bilbo's footsteps in Bag End. And the one the chapter before, when Bilbo gives up the ring and then immediately is swept off his feet at last. And the delight and the relief that he feels when Bilbo, when he sets out on his journey and he sings the song, right? Pursuing it with eager feet, right? That's, that's Bilbo, um, right after he has made his choice and he made the right choice. Bilbo made the right choice and he gave up, he triumphed and gave up the ring. And in response, what did he feel? He felt this, like, this invitation, right? Um, He, and I don't want to, this is a really kind of, feels like a crude way to put it, but he like, he had his reward. As Gandalf said, he felt better at once, right? Um, He's set free, Right. As Gandalf promised that he would, then you can be, you know, uh, uh, you know, give it, you know, let it go. And then you can go to and be free. Gandalf says to to Bilbo. Right. He tells Bilbo that freedom will be a response, will be a, uh, you know, that this kind of freedom, relief, joy uh, will be able to be his if he lets the ring go. Right. But he's going to remain entrapped by the ring. He's going to remain enslaved to the ring. He won't be able to be free until he gives up the ring. Now, with Frodo, it's different, right? He's taking the ring and, uh, and not giving it up. But again, the parallel there, uh, the parallel to him setting up, you know, Bilbo's joy in setting off down the path is a fun contrast and recapitulation of his setting off on his first journey. Right. Um, Contrast because he was not in a state of joy when he set off on his first journey. Um, You know, he was all flustered and didn't really know what he was getting into and left without his hat or pocket handkerchief. Um, And uh, and of course, he is, um, you know, he went with, you know, with no preparations and and, uh, uh, you know, leaving the uh, leaving the the, he didn't leave the dishes unwashed, but well, leaving he left his second breakfast dishes unwashed. Um, uh, Anyway, so. He, uh, uh, whereas, you know, by contrast, he had done all the advanced planning and had everything laid out and set out and everything, right? So we get this, this big contrast with Bilbo's journey. Um, but that, that recapitulation, the way that Frodo is kind of having both at once, right? He is recalling the story of Bilbo's sudden departure, 
right? Bilbo's telling of it, right? And yet the experience that he describes in that passage Tom was quoting is um, is a, 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 a kind of joy which does not match Bilbo's first experience, but Bilbo's second experience, right? Um, so both cases, both hobbits, Bilbo and then Frodo, make the right call. And when they make the right call, the response, the answer, the you know, result, the immediate feedback, as it were, to that is this sort of relief, joy, desire, um, desire fulfilled, desire stirred up, right, um, to go. This is why these, I'm, I'm, I'm going over these old passages in such detail because I'm trying to make it clear why my response to that sentence is wariness, wariness. I don't trust it. I don't trust this overwhelming longing to rest and remain at peace by Bilbo's side. I'm not saying it's a wicked desire, that this is like a sinful temptation of Frodo's. There's nothing wrong with longing to rest and remain at peace by Bilbo's side. And the fact that he has that desire and that feeling, I find it it evokes great pity in me as a reader. Um, I can very much sympathize with that desire, and I can respect the choice that he is about to make all the more, knowing that he has that feeling. So I'm not trying to say that that feeling is itself a bad or a wicked thing. What I am saying is, it strikes me as very unlike his earlier longing, right? What he experienced uh, in that passage, that great desire to follow Bilbo. And the, to me, the primary thing, what, what, what direction does it point? What direction does it point? And here it is direct. It is a longing which must be overcome in order for him to achieve his quest. It might not be, strictly speaking, a temptation in the sense that it's a bad thing that has to be overcome, right? Like a, a bad impulse that must be resisted. It's not that. Um, and yet it's an obstacle. If he were to give into it, if he were to give into that longing, it would stop the quest. Right? It would it would inhibit him um, from doing what he should do, what he knows he should do, what it seems clear. What, again, like and as Elrond is about to make explicit, what at least two other people in the room, um, and quite likely more than that, um, are thinking is the clear, correct answer to this riddle. You know, who shall solve this riddle for us? Frodo's going to solve the riddle, right? But there are others who know the answer. <laughs> they know the right answer to the riddle, right? And they're waiting. They might not be looking at him, but they're thinking about him, right? Again, at least a couple. I don't know if everybody is. Galdor probably hasn't twigged to it, but uh, but they have for sure. Um, um, so, yes, yeah. So this then leads me to the question. Would I go so far as to say that I suspect that overwhelming longing to be a temptation that comes from the ring? Um, I don't know. I don't rule it out. There are arguments that I could easily see on both sides of that question. Um, to me, the strongest argument in favor of it is, as I said, it's this is an impulse 
that is pushing him in the opposite direction of the quest of what he is supposed to do. Um, and that's a little suspicious. It also, I would say, it is not wholly unlike the other ring impulses that we have seen, places where it seems very obvious that the ring is stirring up a particular impulse or rationalization within him, right? Um, in particular, it reminds me a little bit, um, not entirely, but a little bit, of it, it kind of echoes, it's not the same as, but it kind of does echo for me a little bit um, with both the ring impulse that he had in the barrow, right, where he was going to attempted to put on the ring and flee from that situation and escape himself mourning, you know, for Frodo, and, or for, sorry, for, well, for Frodo too, I guess, uh, for Sam and Pippin and Mary, uh, but safe and alive himself, right? And when he goes out, when he's temp, when he almost does, right, when he's one foot over the threshold of Tom Bombadil's house, right? Um, in both cases, the ring is stirring him to, like, get out, be safe, you know, um, like, avoid. the Like, the temptation is to avoid the perilous straight road of the quest, right? Um, I don't know where he's headed out the door, but I suspect... At Tom Bombadil's house, I mean. But I suspect it's... it's He's going to end up headed towards home, if he can. I don't know how he's going to escape the old forest. But but anyway, I, I, there's there's not really a plan there, as far as I can see. Uh, at least we're never told what his plan was, if he had one, when he was leaving the house. Um, but again, like, to, to it's it's a turning both times it's a turning back it's a turning away um and this is another turning away it's not the same not the same by any means but again to me it kind of echoes with it but as i said it's not wholly like it there there are definitely strong counter arguments that could be made as well and the primary counter argument that i would make against it um is that always before that impulse to leave was also an impulse to be separated from all of his companions Right to, to, to abandon Sam and Mary and Pippin in the barrow, to leave Tom Bombadil's hearth and his friends and go off into the old forest on his own. Right, um, Always before the, the, that those impulses given by the ring were ones which were separating him from community, essentially separating him from his companions, isolating him. And this one is an overwhelming desire to remain by Bilbo's side, um, to remain with Bilbo. And that's unlike... Um, the kinds of impulses that the ring has given him before. So, this does not seem to me a smoking gun. But I stand by what I... I hope that I've explained a little bit what I said last time, which is that I think that if the ring is active, if we are seeing any active influence on Frodo by the ring in this paragraph, I think it's this sentence. This is my top candidate. I'm not saying it's a smoking gun, but I'm saying if the ring is happening, I think it's there. I feel positive it is not in that last sentence. Um, now, I've been uh, thinking through a lot of things, and I've been uh, missing a lot of comments, and I'm not going to be able to catch up on all of them, I know. Um, but... Um, uh, yeah. Now, Arden Cran, that's a really great question. How different would the story be if Frodo was really enthusiastic about his quest? Like, booyah, this is awesome. I can't wait to storm Sauron's little fire pit and chuck the ring in. Um, yeah, that would be bad. 
That would be bad. That would show he was not the right person for this. Like, I guess his hands wouldn't be small enough after all, right? If it turns out that that was that that was the way. His reluctance proves that he's the right candidate, and so that Arden Crayon actually I think could be made into a defense of that feeling, right? That his overwhelming longing. It's not an outside temptation. It's not something the ring is trying to use to lure him. Um, it is just the internal impulse. It's just the embodiment of his lack of desire to go on this quest. You know, he he has no. Um, um, I'm thinking of um, Faramir's words, right? Uh, how when he says he has no lure or desire, uh, 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 you know, to 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 take this thing. Um, Frodo does not have any lure or desire either, uh, you know, to to go on this quest, right? He does not volunteer here with any sense of his own heroism, with any, um, uh, you know, grandiose ideas or anything like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I can agree, I think, with a bunch of folks. Um, uh, yeah, I agree. Valor, it's a good way to say it. The Booyah set don't fare well under the ring's influence. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I think if Frodo did jump up and say that, you know, if he did jump up and was like, all right, you know, let's, um, let's make... <laughs> Let's make this happen. When do we leave? Right? Like, I think that Elrond would be like, ah, perhaps I have misunderstood all that I have heard here today. Um, yeah, yeah. And Ashnaz, that's exactly it. Um, Nolo Episcopari is exactly it. Uh, and that's, uh, um, yeah, Nolo Episcopari is the Latin phrase by which means I do not want to be a bishop, uh, basically. And it's, it's what, like, a priest who is uh, being... Um, what's the verb? You're ordained as a priest, and what are you as a bishop? Consecrated? I think it's consecrated. Um, uh, a priest who is being consecrated as, as a bishop says, I don't want to be a bishop. Created? Is it created? Um, interesting. Um, I mean, you created a cardinal. I think you're consecrated a bishop, aren't you? But anyway, whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, uh, the, um, oh, interesting. Okay. Oh, well, point is, if you're really gunning for it, it's a bad sign, right? And Tolkien quoted that in a totally, in a non-religious, in a, a non-Lord of the Rings, in a political context, right? When he was talking about, like, why he's an anarchist. Um, uh, not like a whiskered dude throwing bombs, but um, the kind of anarchist who, who doesn't think that anybody who really wants to govern should be in charge, right? Um, and I, I totally... Um, Agree uh, that um, the um, I, I still feel that way. Like basically, I'd, um, I I always have a hard time voting for presidential candidates. I've never really supported a presidential candidate, and it took me. It wasn't until I read that letter from Tolkien that I realized why. It's because they're all running, right? That's that's the problem. Like they all want very much to be president, and that's why I distrust a lot of them. But um, anyway, um, yeah. Oh. I was right. Bishops are consecrated. Boom. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. Whew. All right. Oh, there we go. All right. 
it's good to get our good to get our ecclesiastic language correct. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Um, so uh, Gil Gonther, I kind of think the Hitchhiker's Guide theory about presidents is arguably better uh, than our system, but whatever. Um, okay, so. Um, uh, but I'm digressing. Nolo Episcopari, his reluctance. So yeah, so it's easy to, you can just as well go to that sentence, the overwhelming longing sentence, and say, this is just, this is a good sign, right? Like if, because it, it is, it is a good sign. It is a good sign that what his desire is, right? Like when you look into Frodo's heart at this moment, um, you know, in as much as this is like a touchstone for Frodo's own um, heart, right? What does it show us, right? And it shows us what he really wants is not power. It's not even the ring. It's to rest and remain at peace by Bilbo's side in Rivendell, right? Um, and that's, um, yeah, he has no cockiness or, or uh, self-assured swagger, Gilgonthir, exactly so. Um, yeah, that's that's just exactly it. Um, and yes, Ashnaz, you're right that it's the same thing we see when Gandalf turns down the leadership of the White Council. His desire not to be the leader of the White Council is also a pretty good sign. And by the way, a pretty good sign that, like, the rest of the wise were fairly foolish that day, right? You don't take the guy who wants to be in charge. You take the guy who doesn't want to be in charge. And uh, shame on Goadriel and Elrond for not parsing that one properly, right? Um, Goadriel really should have insisted, uh, uh, you know, even though we're told she was in favor. But, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, good. And now, Gilgalady, thank you for that. Is a marvelous, marvelous um, uh, segue. Hang on, I'm going to come back to it in just a second. Um, no, I agree, Captain Mo, that if it isn't the ring, it makes Frodo's decision so much more awesome. And I agree. Um, uh, I still don't exculpate her. I mean, I. Is it possible that the ring is going to play on that? I think it's possible. But I am not really... I'm not sold on the idea that the ring is really present anywhere here. Um, Not because I don't think the ring has an opinion. (laughs) Um, As I said, I believe that sentence to be the most likely candidate, but I do not consider it a smoking gun. I think it's very plausible... I think it's very plausible that the ring is not getting a vote in this particular election. Um, And I think there's a reason to believe that. And the reason that I believe that is that I think the voice of the ring is um, being um, rather drowned out at the moment. Um, So, yes... Gilgalady, I'll come back to your, your indeed marvelous uh, segue here. Um, she says, once he admits his true desire to himself, then the Valar speak with his voice. Um, there's the dread, right? Um, the acknowledgement, almost the confession of his own longing, right? Of what his heart really wants. Um, it's like he allows himself for a moment um, to feel 
this longing, right, this overwhelming longing. And again, note how once more we have the language of passivity here, right? A great dread falls on him, as if from outside, waiting for the pronouncement of a doom from outside on him, right, as he's the, the victim, right, of the doom. Then an overwhelming longing, overwhelming, like he's, uh, you know, a wave goes over his head, right? This longing to rest and remain at peace fills all of his heart, right? He doesn't go there. He doesn't, you know, bring it up. It's just, it overwhelms him. Again, he's passive. Again, he's the victim there. These are the two things, right? Oh no, it's going to happen. They're going to, you know, they're going to somebody is going to say, I have to do it. And then the reaction, right? I really want to stay here. I really, you know, I long to remain at rest uh, and peace with Bilbo. Both of those feelings coming in almost as if from the outside, um, overwhelming his heart in these two different directions, right? At last, with an effort, he spoke and wondered to hear his own words as if some other will was using his small voice. What I like most about this, what I'm most fascinated by, is the division. Um, if we didn't have the first half of that sentence, it would sound like Frodo did not make the choice at all. Right? I mean, if it said something like, at last, words started to come out of him, and he wondered to hear his own words, as if some other will was using his small voice. Right? Um, but Frodo's not just a sock puppet here. He's not. It says, with an effort, he spoke. He makes an effort to speak. We see his choice to speak or to try to speak before he says anything. His wonder is not at the fact that he's speaking. He not only chose to speak, he tried hard to do it. He exerted an effort to speak. So he's not in wonder to hear the, 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 the to hear words. It's, but he is in wonder, right? When he, when the words come out, they cause wonder in him. He doesn't like, what, recognize the sound of his own voice? Right? Um, uh, I think that what he says surprises him. Not in the sense, I think, not at all in the sense of, like, I opened my mouth to say, heck no, <laughs> take it yourself, Bozo. And, like, instead I found myself saying, I will take the ring. Um, no. I, I, um, he is... Um, his words come out differently than he expected? Is it differently than he expected to hear them? Is the tone of voice different than he expected? That seems to me very likely. Is his voice strengthened? Um, the effort to speak suggests that he feels like he can barely get the words out. And that when, he do, when the words do come, perhaps he's expecting weak 
halting words. Weak, halting, stumbling, fumbling words. But when he actually does speak, that's not what happens. I love the small, right? His small voice. As if some other Will was using his small voice. And the implication to me is that his words are not small. He was expecting a small voice. He was exerting an effort and expected to hear something that sounded something like, well, I, I guess I'll take the ring. You know, stumblingly, hesitatingly, with all of the dread and fear and uncertainty, with all of the conflicted desire and longing to rest and remain at peace by Bilbo, um, and all of the unconfidence of his own feelings about the probability of success and everything else and his own fear. That's what he expects. But that's not what he hears. That's why I think he says it's like as if some other will is using his small voice, because I don't think it comes out small. I will take the ring, he said, though I do not know the way. Um, yes, he's finding something bigger within him than his own small voice would convey, Emma Thorne? Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, Ray Burns is wondering if it's the same sort of thing that happened when he dropped the E-bomb. Um, I wonder, I think perhaps... Um, I don't think exactly, because there, I think, that came from him. Right? I mean, not the power, but the appeal, right? Um, uh, um, Elbereth, and again, Tom, I think you did a, a blog post on this, Tom Hill, in Tom, Tom Hillman's blog, uh, the Alas Not Me blog. Um, um, uh, you talked about the Elbereth, you know, the and the, like... It's not like it's a magic word, as you were pointing out, of course, and as we discussed a little bit. When he says it again, you know, by Elbereth and Luthien the Fair at the Ford, it doesn't work, right? Um, so it's not a magic word. Um, the point is, he, he calls out to Elbereth, and Elbereth answers when he calls out uh, on Weathertop, right? Um, that's, uh, it's not a magic spell. Uh, that's a, it was an appeal, and an, it was an appeal that was answered the one time and not answered the second time. Um, uh, now, you know, like, why not? Well, that's a really interesting question. And, you know, uh, to, to sort of look at that. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, so Rayburn's in this way, I think it's different. I think the experience that he's having is different. That was, that, that came from him, right? I mean, it was like well thought of, right? And it was, uh, it said good things about Frodo's heart in several, about his courage, um, about his faith. Right. It said good things about Frodo, that he was um, appealing to Elbereth in that way, in that circumstance, like while attacking. Right. Uh, and standing against the darkness like that. That was that was it said all kinds of good things about his heart, but it was an overflow of his own heart in that way. This is something else answering his own heart. And again, what I would what what I what I think we see happening here. Right. Frodo has made the choice. He's making the effort. Right. His act of will, I think, is clear. And that's why I love the reference to the effort with which he speaks. Right. Um, we know that it's his own will. He's not just like his mouth running all by itself. Right. Um, he made the choice and we see the path to that choice. And it's a difficult path. The dread, the longing. But he makes 
the right choice, the choice that he already kind of made, right? Um, uh, though he was kind of hoping that maybe he could kind of get off on a technicality. Maybe I've, I'm done. Maybe what I signed up to do is, is, is finished now, right? Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, yes, yes. Ashnaz, I, I agree. I think that's a good way to say it. That if anything, it's almost the other way around from the Elbereth moment in that way. Um, that there he was calling out to Elbereth and she was responding. Here, they are helping him, right? You know, uh, they are calling him and he's the one who is answering. Yes, but I'm not sure I'd say they're calling him and he's answering. It's not exactly opposite Ashton. I would say, again, he's choosing and they are, but he's not calling out to them, right? He's not invoking them. Um, but yet, he, Frodo is answered, right? Um, but yet Frodo is assisted. There is some other will using his small voice. Um, uh, and for myself, I absolutely believe that this is Iluvatar, um, that that's the will of Iluvatar. Um, I certainly, it's, there's, I don't think there's any way that is, again, this is where I said I'd fight anybody uh, about this. I, I would take a very great deal of convincing um, that that is the ring uh, that is doing that. Um, it, um, it, um, it doesn't fit. Yeah, that's a really interesting way Nathan, to think about it. It's scaffolding his voice. It's supporting it. It's not replacing it. Exactly. It's not putting, um, it's not putting words into his mouth. Exactly. It's not making a choice for him, right? It is, what he says is what he was trying to say, but it comes out other than what he was, it just comes out differently than he was expecting to hear it. At least I, I believe that's why he is wondering to hear his own words. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Um, Rayburn's exactly, that's just it, I think. The essence of free will, he has to make the decision, and once he does, Iluvatar supports the articulation of his decision. Um, yes, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I, um, I saw some people sort of, talking, speculating about um, uh, Gandalf, um, you know, this, like, uh, filling people with hope and uh, and things are, like, you know, it's kind of his bag, right? So uh, could Gandalf be at work here? I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. Can I absolutely rule it out? No. Do I think that Gandalf is sitting there you know, do I think that Gandalf is thinking about Frodo in this moment? Yes, I do. Do I think that Gandalf is like, would exert anything that he has to help Frodo in this moment? Yeah, I do. But I don't think that Gandalf is doing this. There are two reasons why I don't think that Gandalf is doing this. One, this doesn't sound or feel like Gandalf. Um, we will see a time. Um, uh, we will see a time when Frodo is definitely being inspired and influenced by Gandalf. Um, and it will, when we do, it will say things like, 
um, take it off, fool. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly, trifle. Yeah, thinking of exactly the same moment. Um, there's no, there's no missing the Gandalfian flavor of the influence that comes over Frodo in that moment. Right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, anyway, I. So. But the other, so that that's one point is that it it doesn't it doesn't have the Gandalfian flavor. That's that's one that's one. It's it's just it's less abusive, right? I mean, so it's probably not Gandalf. Um, uh, but um, the other thing is, remember my uh, my uh, uh, sort of title for the discussion last week? You know, for discussing this whole passage uh, was. Um, that's what this whole council business was all about, really. Um, right? Thinking back to Bilbo talking about his party, um, I, 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 I genuinely think the that Elrond has had has held this council entirely to set up Frodo's public volunteering at the end. I think that he knew. Now, you know, he says that he has learned things in this council and sees things clearly. I'm not trying to, you know, question him or say that he was just blowing smoke when he was saying that. Um, but I think that what he's received is confirmation, not whole new ideas. Um, I think that he already had, and we know for a fact <clears throat> that Gandalf already had a shrewd idea. He already mentioned it, right? Um, it may be your task to find the cracks of doom, he said to Frodo cheerfully back in Bag End. Right? Gandalf already had a notion. Um, now, he, he left the door open, or that task may be for others, right? Um, but um, he... Um, uh, but anyway, Gandalf already had a notion. We already heard his notion, right, much earlier on. I feel pretty confident that both Gandalf and Elrond know where this, ultimately, where this council needs to go. Um, I now I get, do I think that that means they're just like that it's all artificial? No, I you know this is it's, it's it's important that this should happen, and it's important that this should happen publicly. But most importantly of all, it is important that Frodo volunteers. Um, I don't think Gandalf would sit there and exert his will to do anything that would seem to impinge on. Frodo's free will. What the thing that does come alongside him, whatever other will it is that assists Frodo in this moment, can see into the deeps of Frodo's mind, knows what Frodo is trying to say. He's made his decision, and it helps him, this other will, helps Frodo to declare it, right? Um, I'm not sure Gandalf can do that. I'm not sure that Gandalf can um, do exactly that. Um, and I think that he is, I would believe that he is backing off uh, to um, uh, allow Frodo to make the choice. Now, um, again, when we saw Gandalf exerting his will over Bilbo, he wasn't exerting it over Bilbo. He wasn't forcing Bilbo or trying to influence Bilbo. All he was doing was resisting the ring's grip on Bilbo. And remember, when we were looking at that 
some time ago, um, we noticed that it had an immediate impact. Remember, you know, uh, Bilbo starts right away saying things like, and it would, you know, uh, it would be good to be rid of it in a way, right? Like, he is freed, he, he returns back to, he was of two minds at first, right? He felt the conflict, Bilbo did. And then he was in the grip of the ring, right? And he was like, you know, calling Gandalf a thief and you won't take my ring from me. And then Gandalf exerts his power. You know, you'll see Gandalf the Grey uncloaked. Um, and then that's when Bilbo doesn't start saying, you know, start getting brainwashed by Gandalf, right? He doesn't, you know, instead he goes back to where he started, right? Of two minds um, and freer now to make his own choice. So again, I don't think... Um, it's, it's not how Gandalf plays. I don't think that he's gonna that he's gonna do this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's see. Hang on. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting, Michael Tobias. Michael says um, it's it, it feels like Tuor coming to Gondolin. Uh, with Olmo putting the words in his heart, he had to undertake the journey. Olmo didn't force him to go, but once he arrives, Providence takes over. Um, that's really interesting, Michael. Um, that would be an interesting comparison, actually. And Michael, I would say in particular, I would compare that to. Um, uh, I would compare that to the later and terribly, tragically unfinished version of Two Are Coming to Gondolin. Um, I just reread that recently. Um, oh, it always makes me so sad that it's not finished. But um, I just reread the Two Are bit from um, uh, uh, Unfinished Tales recently. I'm rereading Unfinished Tales now because they finally released a regular legal audiobook, uh, unabridged audiobook. I'm so happy. Oh, man. When Audible announced that they were releasing Unfinished Tales, I was, like, dancing around my kitchen. Um, oh, man. So good. So good. Anyway, sorry. So, digressing. Tuor. Michael. Yes. So, um, it would, that's a really interesting comparison, right? And when you look at Tolkien's depiction of, like, the desire that he had always had in his heart to find Turgon, right? That hearing the name of Turgon was like stirring up these desires in him and everything. Um, but um, uh, anyway, I I, um, um, I think that, uh, but then like, yeah, so, and, and he makes the choice and he volunteers and he takes up, uh, you know, the, the armor and the shield upon himself. And he, uh, you know, so, I mean, the, the, we see lots of places where Tuor chooses, but also lots of places where he is, you know, the, the destined instrument. Tuor in that, just even in that sequence of the story that we get, um, as relationship between, like, predestined messenger and his own free will, I think that's, um, um, I think that that's really... Um, a really, really interesting comparison. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I love how they do the voicing and the unfinished... Uh, how they have, like, um, a younger and an older narrator, and the younger narrator just reads Tolkien's words, the primary stories, and the older narrator reads Christopher's notes. 
fantastic. Love it. I love it. And I love the, like, reversal of that. Like, you're hearing the voice of the young Tolkien uh, and then hearing the voice of the elderly Christopher commenting on it. There's something I find extremely delightful about that. I mean, like, in my imagination, like, it's hard not to hear that uh, when you're listening to the audiobook. Love it. Love it. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, uh, so, anyway. Um, yeah. I wanted to say there was another a comment that I almost missed that I want to come back to. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. Um, uh, wait for it. Almost came back. Um, yes, Tiny Tim. That was the one. That's a brilliant observation that I just love. Um, Tiny Tim says, It feels significant that he is longing to rest and remain at peace by Bilbo's side, which is ultimately granted by the act of taking the ring. The act allows him to go west with Bilbo in the end. Prophecy or just foreshadowing? Uh, Maybe option C, Tiny Tim? Grace? Right? Like, his longing... It turns out what he sacrifices to take the ring, resting and remaining at peace by Bilbo's side, is not sacrifice, is granted to him anyway through his choice, through his sacrifice. Um, it is granted to him as a kind of consolation. And in a more profound way than he could possibly have imagined, right? Um, I mean, imagine saying to Frodo um, at this moment, right? Not that you could or wouldn't even necessarily want to, as Sam might say on the st- stairs of Kirathungal, but, but imagine, right, if you could say to Frodo at this moment, well, no, you don't get to rest and remain at peace by Bilbo's side in Rivendell. Instead, you will find rest and peace by Bilbo's side in Elvenhoe as a consequence of your sacrifice, right? How does that sound, right? And, you know, I'm not saying it's all about the reward, right? But, Tiny Tim, that concept as an act of, as an act of grace, um, I think, you know, that's just, that seems uh, really, really beautiful, uh, really beautiful uh, uh, to me. Um, it's uh, just gorgeous. Yeah, exactly. They upgraded the location of Frodo's retirement. Yeah, they really did. They really did. Um, yeah. Um, so anyway, that's, I'm glad, Tony Tim, I'm glad I found your comment. I saw it go by and I'm like, ooh, 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 wait. <laughs> I know I want to, I want to talk about that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Yeah, so, uh, I, yeah, Bjorning and Exiles, you know, can we talk about the action of grace and fate versus free will? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I kind of am, <laughs> basically. I mean, it's, uh, yes, yes, I do think that this is one of those moments in which, I, I th- for my money, I think that Tolkien does, uh, you know, in several of his writings, um, treats the themes 
of fate and free will or, you know, destiny and free will, predestination, however you want to talk about it. Um, I think that Tolkien treats those ideas more richly in his fiction than I than anyone else I've ever seen. Like I don't know of any other work of fiction that treats those more richly than Tolkien does. Um, I think it's really pretty remarkable, actually, uh, how he does this. And this is one of my top moments. Um, you know, if you really want to see it kind of like in, all, in, all, in exposition mode, essentially, you go to the Ainulindale, right, where he talks about it openly. Um, but you want to kind of see what it looks like on the road. Like, how is it that you can believe that there's providence, right? That there is some other power taking a hand, as Gandalf might say, some other will at work, um, that things are working out, that God is in control and things are working out the way that God wants them to be, uh, you know, again, through providence. Again, and here I'm using the, the you know, the, the Tolkien's Catholic terms. Um, I... And yet, the will remains free. People's choices matter. Um, this is a yeah. Well, say Boethius isn't fiction. Well, I mean, it's technically fiction. I don't think he actually had a conversation with Lady Philosophy, but um, but I wasn't counting Boethius for that reason. I mean, in fiction, in fiction. Um, but um, but anyway, I think it's it's. Yes, I agree with that, Bjorn. And this is the kind of scene where the actual agency of providence. Um, uh, yeah, where, where it all becomes crystal clear. Yes. As if some other Will was using his small voice. That is about as openly theological as Tolkien is going to get in The Lord of the Rings. Like, there you go. Like, if, if, if you can't... If you can't hear that Tolkien is talking about the actions of God there, then you shan't anywhere in The Lord of the Rings. I mean, it's, it's one of the most overt. He's not, as we all know. Tolkien's not very overt about this, right? Um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, XO in charge of radishes? Okay, yeah. Uh, as his, I can put it no plainer than to say... Exactly, right. Yeah, that's exactly it. Tolkien can put it no plainer than that. Um, or at least he doesn't uh, uh, put it any plainer than that, for sure. Um Exactly. Tolkien's Catholicism claims that free will and providence uh, coexist in the same action, and Tolkien just outright implements that worldview directly. Yeah, absolutely. He does. And this is what Tolkien meant when he said in his letters uh, that, you know, the Lord of the Rings is a Catholic work. Um, it's not a work of apologetics. Apologetics meaning, like, to defend the faith. Like, he's not uh, trying to explain or defend Catholicism through this work. He's not writing allegory. He's not, um, he's not a very preachy writer at all. But is he absolutely, is he embodying the worldview that he believed in? As a count, yes, he is, and and I agree. I mean, this is this moment is on my very short list. I would call, I would put this in the top five passages in the entire Lord of the Rings, um, where Tolkien's theology is made most plain. Um, um, <laughs> Exo in charge of radishes, just as you say. I I can put it no plainer, right? Exactly. That's exactly it. Um, yes. Okay. Um, now, Bobby, I was just getting to that. I hadn't forgotten. Um, uh, I hadn't forgotten, but I've been saving it. 
the final phrase. I will take the ring, though I do not know the way. We've talked now about everything here except for his actual words, right? Um, and first, I want to come to um, his verb. Um, there was some discussion of that. Um, uh, there was some discussion of that last week. I will take the ring. Um, It is, an, it is interesting that he uses that verb, isn't it? Um, the will is important. And I, I mentioned this, and I was plugging Tom's blog post about this, his use of will instead of shall. He's not just speaking in the future tense. Um, he is making an act of will. He is making a verbal, he's verbalizing an act of will. He is enacting an act of will. I will take the ring. That's really important there. Again, his act of will, the effort that he was putting in, the choice that he made is being foregrounded there. Um, and yeah, Erev um, Numenor, you're right. He's not just volunteering. He's announcing. He doesn't just say, um, I'll do it if you want, right, or something like that, right? Um, I will take the ring. Because it is also a future tense statement as well, right? I agree with Tom that that choice of helping verb is significant. I will take the ring. Um, I will to do it. And yet, it remains future tense. Um, it remains future tense indicative. I will take the ring. Um, and yes, Rowan, that, though, is the other thing that I think is really interesting. Take, not bear. I will take the ring. Take to Mordor, in one sense, right? Um, uh, take uh, but yeah take it upon oneself in a sense yeah but at the same time it's a risky word it's a risky word taking the ring is a big deal it's not the same thing as claiming the ring but as we've seen so many times, it's the gateway drug to claiming the ring, right? First, first you take it. Um, and um, Oh, that's really interesting, Matt. Matt says you can make it work, uh, was showing that you can make it work in several ways. Like, um, I will take the ring to Mordor, though I do not know the way to get to Mordor, is one way to take his sentence. Uh, and he says, I will take the ring up as a burden, though I do not know the way. That is, like, though I, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how I'll make it, right? I don't know how I'm going to, you know, succeed in bearing this burden. Or, I will take the ring as ring bearer and perhaps owner, but I don't know how to do that, as Galadriel will indicate later that he hasn't tried, right? Um, all of the possible senses of taking the ring and then the subsequent declaration of ignorance all work. Um, 
if you take, even, I mean, I, I'm not saying, I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say, don't anybody get offended and thinking that I'm saying this is Frodo saying, I claim the ring, un, you know, and name it unto myself, right? This is not, this is very different from the statement that he's making um, on the edges of the cracks of doom. The ring is mine, right? And yet, it echoes with it. Um, it, it, it sets it up. Um, there is a foreshadowing of that. He is going to claim the ring. He is going to take the ring in that sense. Um, and if he doesn't yet know the way, he's going to figure it out, right? Um, just as he's going to figure out how to get there. Um, so um, anyway, like I, I'm not at all, I'm not trying to confound those things. What I'm saying is that word choice opens those resonances. Clearly what he means is I will take the ring to Mordor. I think that Matt's sense one is the primary sense here. Um, but I think that both of those other two are lurking there. And I think that we can hear the echoes of them in that statement. It's a very resonant statement that he's making here, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but I love the, um, uh, I love the declaration of ignorance right off, though I, I do not know the way, right? Um, it is on the one hand, Ashnazga, I agree, there's a note of plaintiveness in that almost, right? I will take the ring, but please don't make me go alone, right? Um, but I don't think I can do this by myself. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and that, of course, is kind of the seal on it, right? That I, I, Frodo could not have passed the test more clearly. I mean, because I do think that there is a sense, I'm not saying it's just a test, but there is a level right on which I think this whole thing is a test of Frodo's heart. Is he going to volunteer? Is he willing to do it? Because if he's not, if he doesn't take it on himself voluntarily, he's not going to be a, a trustworthy bearer of the ring. Um, um, he might, what is it that Sam is going to say? Um, throw the ring away and bolt, right? Um, so he has to take it up knowing what he's doing, right? So it's, it's that test. But it's also the test to see how small his hands are, right? A test of his humility. A test to make sure. Um, and of all of the things that Elrond has learned at the quest, this is the, at the council, this is the main one, right? Whoop, accidentally advanced to the next slide. Uh, gosh, that's premature. Um, uh, this is the primary thing that Elrond is learning, Right? Is he the one? Right? Is this the right call? And when he not only... When he, I mean, he just... he just it's, it Does it perfectly. Right? Willingness. I will take the ring. Humility. Though I do not know the way. I, I'm going to need help here. I can't do it by myself. Um, yeah, it's... Um, it's... It's... He has, as I say, passed every um, test that there could that there could be there. Um, 
Yeah. And Matt, I agree. All three of those versions of the statement are all the same. They're all tied up together. For one to take the ring to Mordor, you have to take up the burden and the risk uh, and risk the threat of falling under its sway. Um, but he doesn't even know how to begin because everyone in the room understands that taking the ring is as significant a choice as you can make. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All, all, all three of those things are... T- that's why I don't think it undermines Frodo's choice to hear the echoes of those other senses, especially that third and dangerous sense. I will take the ring. Yeah, you will. On the cracks of Mount Doom, Frodo, you will take the ring. You will claim the ring to keep it for your own. Right? It's true. That will happen. That future statement is going to come true. Um, Just as his, you know, more noble, wonderful, providence-supported volunteering is also very true and but as Matt says they're, they're all they're all this they, they are tied up together um, and that's why I really like um, uh, uh, that's why I really really like the um, uh, choice of the word take because it's more ambiguous or more if you just said like I will bear the ring that narrows the meaning down right? Take. Take is broader, right? Take is more dangerous. Uh, Take is, but also, therefore, more honest, you know, more honest. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. Yeah, that's a good way to say it, Bjorning. The take word gives this passage the richness and nuance usually reserved for long-form poetry. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, Let's start. We won't finish this passage, but that's okay. Um, let's, uh, let's start the next slide. But of course, let's not forget his rather plaintive desire for companionship and assistance, right? Because we know there is one person in the room who has heard that note, <laughs> right? Uh, and is ready to ensure uh, that it is answered. Elrond raised his eyes and looked at him, and Frodo felt... Notice the the recollection, right? Frodo looking around, and I'm sure he was looking at Elrond, possibly first, if not second, right? Looking at Elrond to see if Elrond was looking at him when nobody was speaking, right? And now Elrond does look at him, raised his eyes. His eyes were down, right, as was described in the previous uh, uh, passage. And now Elrond does look at him. And Frodo felt his heart pierced by the sudden keenness of the glance. If I understand aright all that I have heard, he said, I think that this task is appointed for you, Frodo, and that if you do not find a way, no one will. This is the hour of the Shire folk, when they arise from their quiet fields to shake the towers and councils of the great. Who of all the wise could have foreseen it? Or, if they are wise, why should they expect to know it until the hour has struck? Let's uh, let's focus on that for now. We'll get to the elf friends uh, next week. Um, uh, 
yeah, yeah. Admiral Malcontent says, I have a hard time not seeing Elrond raising his eyes after this pronouncement as an image of a prayer being answered. Yeah, yeah. And I agree, Aravanuminor. Elrond's been holding that glance back for a while. Yes. Um, now, the keenness of his glance. I think the testing is not quite done, right? Um, in this moment, he is piercing Frodo's heart with the sudden keenness of his glance. Elrond, um, this would be too harsh a way to say it. Uh, it's not exactly like Elrond is in trust but verify mode, but there's a little bit of that going on here. He, he, he heard Frodo. Frodo said exactly the right things, right? And what does Elrond do? Gives him a suddenly keen glance that pierces to his heart. He is checking, right? He is, at this moment, when Frodo says this, looking, studying him, um, he is reading to the extent that he can Frodo's heart and mind to see what is behind this. Um, d is that really as good as it sounded? <laughs> right? Willingness to go, acceptance of the probable sacrifice involved, um, uh, you know, so volunteering with a spirit of selflessness and sacrifice and yet humility, that's what just happened, right? You know, he's not um, uh, he's not He's not, uh, he's not fronting <laughs> here, right? Um, and uh, he um, pierces him with his keen glance. Um, now, that, that would be a fun exercise. There are several people whose glances are described as keen. Um, people who can pierce hearts uh, with their glances. Um, that would be a fun study, wouldn't it? To compare and contrast the people who do this, um, who are described in this way by Tolkien, and the circumstances under which they do it, right? Um, yeah, Tim Dolph, I agree. Elrond is is assessing Frodo here, um, and I agree he is likely assessing him for because remember, there's there are two questions, Tim Dolph. It's not only will Frodo resist the ring, but is he resisting the ring? I mean, he's he knows he knows that uh, Frodo is already to some extent under the power of the ring. Gandalf Wolf told him. Gandalf Wolf told him about the little awkward fireplace moment, right? Um, you know, we talked about this before, right? Like, hey, whom do we need to throw the, uh, the ring into the cracks of doom? Oh, I know. Let's get the guy who couldn't even chuck it into his fireplace, right? Let's chuck the, the, the one person in the room who is 0 for 1 on throwing the ring into a fire, <laughs> right? Like, if, if, there's, if anybody in the room has previous experience right, with throwing the ring into a hot place or failing to do it, right, maybe that would disqualify you, right? We need somebody who we have, I mean, I mean yeah, I'm sure that's come up. I'm sure that's come up before. 
Um, second time's the charm, Torlonio. Exactly. I'm sure it'll work out. I'm sure it'll work out the second time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Exactly. Mygwin's name literally means sharp glance. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes, it does. Yes, it does. Uh, which just goes to show that keenness of glance is not merely uh, a weapon wielded uh, by the wise and benevolent. Um, but um, uh, anyway, um, <laughs> oh, Emma Thorne, that's a little bit horrible. Uh, it says, look, we just need to get him close enough for Sam to push him in. That's not how Sam would play it, Emma Thorne. In fact, of course, what we saw is Sam playing it in precisely the opposite way. Um, you guys remember, oh, I don't know if I say remember, maybe you don't know, um, but those who did the uh, Mythgard Academy discussion of uh, the War of the Ring uh, with me will remember uh, that in the very first draft of the Cracks of Doom, when Tolkien, Tolkien's first draft of the Cracks of Doom scene, he had Sam throwing himself into the cracks of doom and bringing about the destruction of the ring. Um, um, he like Gandalf or like Gollum takes the ring. Gollum always takes the ring from Frodo. And then, uh, and then Sam like tackles Gollum and, and, and plunges with him into the cracks of doom. That was draft one. It's the only draft in which Sam died. Um, but, um, but yeah, that was, um, th that's how Sam would play it at the cracks of doom. Um, Exactly, JJ. Then in the second draft, he was like fighting hand to hand with the Nazgul. Uh, Sam was, uh, which is also a little bit awesome. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. I'll praise. I agree. I mean, it's it's hard to it's hard to deny that the Sam sacrificing himself to destroy the ring would not have been an incredibly moving ending. Uh, but um, I'm just as happy that Sam survived. <laughs> at the end. Right. But Bricktails, I agree. Also, in the drafts, he had already fought off Ungoliant herself, so, you know, and Nazgul was kind of small potatoes by that point, right? But, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, we, we digress. Um, okay. Where was, was I talking? Oh, yeah. Keen, his keen glance. Um, if I understand aright all that I have heard, I think that this task is appointed for you, Frodo. The affirmation that Elrond gave... Notice how this is almost a paraphrase of what Gandalf said to Frodo before, right? Um, you know, remember his... Uh, then you also were meant to have the ring, and that may be a comforting thought, right? Um, I, Elrond does not cheerfully add, and that may be, uh, and that may be a comforting thought, right? Um, but, um, I, but I think he's saying this because he believes it will be a comforting thought, right? Um, he speaks in affirmation of Frodo, not just saying, Frodo, I think you're a great candidate, uh, let's put it up for a vote. All in favor? Of, I second Frodo's motion. All in favor? Right? That's not what Elrond is saying here. He's saying, yes, this is this is a done deal. This is how it was meant to be. Um, if I understand aright all that I have heard, um, this is Elrond attuning himself to the music, right? This is how it's supposed to go. This is, in fact, the story that is unfolding. Um, that's you know, what this council had to decide and all it had to decide, right, was what's their job, you know? What's, um, what story 
are they what kind of story are they in and what is their place in it what is their role in it how is this supposed to go because they're not ultimately they're not in charge of this that was clear from the beginning they didn't orchestrate this they couldn't have orchestrated this um you know this is not the last stage of a desperate gambit right um uh the last uh the last stage of a desperate gambit which begins with like First, let's like, you know, get the ring away and then like we'll contrive to keep it in hiding with various hobbits and, and you know, and the first we'll bury it in the river. And then we'll, right? I mean, like it's not a stratagem, right? Um, the discovery of the ring, the you know, the hiding and then the discovery of the ring and it's coming into their possession right now at this time of need. I mean, again, all, all the stuff that we've been talking about, um, it's clear that someone has a plan right their job is to uh, uh, to see as clearly as possible what someone's plan is right how are things supposed to go how can we best not screw this up would be one simple way uh of uh and rather crude uh way of um, uh of describing this and he says i think that this task is appointed for you frodo you are dest- this thing that you just volunteered for you are destined for this um and um and i think that he is and that may be a comforting thought right he doesn't say it but i think that he means it um as we can see from his uh if you do not find a way no one will um you because you are appointed to this that doesn't mean notice like the way that he contextualizes this he doesn't say yep well Fair enough, Frodo, you sure drew the short straw here, right? It turns out that you're the one who is screwed over, but I mean appointed to go on this quest, right? That's not his message. His message is you are the chosen instrument. If you do not find a way, no one will. Um, The best chance that all of the free people of the world have, the best chance for the world to be rid of, of the threat of Sauron for all time is for you, Frodo, to take the ring. So, like, no bravery, you are the short straw. <laughs> Mudmore, exactly. Exactly. Um, yes, yes. Um, right, and I know, beyond a sonar, it is, you know, tempting to say, to add no pressure uh, to that, but, but that's the point. He is decreasing the pressure. On Frodo. I know it might not sound like it, but I think that that is, in fact, what he means. Um, he is saying not, you know, so don't screw it up, Frodo. He's saying, I think you are less capable of screwing this up than anybody else is. Right. I mean, this is this is your task. This is your task. Um, you are you are the chosen instrument. Um you are, yours are the hands that were selected. You, you, congratulations, you're the protagonist of this story. Does that mean there's more pressure on Frodo? Well, in one sense, right? But in another sense, there's less pressure. Remember the paradox that Frodo just experienced, right? The paradox of, of you know, providence and free will, of of destiny was a doom pronounced on him kinda but not like he was dreading in fact he chose and that choice is immediately endorsed by this other will 
right? And what he says comes from him, but also comes from beyond him. He's already just experienced in the wonder that he feels at hearing his own words should give him a little key to what Elrond is saying, right? The good news, Frodo, is that this might be, you might be the protagonist in your story, but this it's an ultimate, it's not your story, right? Um, uh, you're not driving this bus. And Frodo has just experienced that he's not driving this bus, right? At least certainly not um, um, not all by himself there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, then what he adds is really interesting. This is... Oh, yeah, sorry. Kurtzimus, you're absolutely right. I was not picking up on the directness with which he is responding to Frodo's statement. Frodo's statement of humility and ignorance, but I do not know the way. And Elrond responds to that directly. If you do not find a way, no one will. Um, So again, it's a statement of sort of, one could say, of slightly dubious comfort, right? Um, by saying, I do not know the way, Frodo is asking for help, and Elrond is saying, you are the help, right? Nobody knows the way. But you're more likely to find it than anybody else is likely to find the way. Um, which is interesting, right? Um, but again, um, that is comforting, right? It is comforting. This is your... You were made for this. This is your calling, Frodo. And he was aware of it, right? He was aware... He, he, he knew it. He knew it. Um, he had a moment of dread, right? He, he was um, self-conscious, wondering if everybody else was expecting him to volunteer. I think in part because he knew that he should from the beginning. He knew. He knew that this was his calling. Um, he knew he had a, a notion of that all the way from back in Bag End when he volunteered the first time. Um, and Elrond is affirming that. Um, but again, I love how his response to Frodo is not to reassure him. If Frodo, if what Frodo says there at the end on some level boils down to, but I'm going to need help, please, Elrond's response is not to reassure him. His response is not to say, don't worry, we'll give you all the help we can. Um, and this, by the way, I think is a much more, is a much deeper and more subtle response than we see in the film. Love the film moment. It works really great. The whole, you have my axe and, and my sword, and if by, you know, the montage, right, that happens, you know, Gandalf's quote from Bag End and uh, Strider's quote from uh, The Prancing Pony all coming out at the same time, right, uh, in this moment in the movie. Um, that is in the film, when Frodo volunteers, immediately the Fellowship crystallizes around him, right, and we see all the support and help that he's going to get. And it's beautiful. I love how it works in the film. Um, but that's not what Elrond is doing and saying here 
is a good deal more abstract and profound. If you do not find a way, no one will. You feel weak, Frodo. You feel ignorant. You are very conscious of the smallness of your hands. You feel like you have just volunteered for a hopeless errand. Um, and I'm here to tell you, Frodo, that if you do not find a way, no one will. Um, it isn't that nobody can help you. It's not that you're on your own. It's almost the opposite of that, right? Um, you're not driving the bus, right? You are an instrument, but you are an instrument in the hands of providence, of destiny. Um, and you are the very weakness and ignorance um, and uncertainty that you are expressing is what makes you strong. Um, this is the hour of the Shire folk when they arise from their quiet fields to shake the towers and councils of the great. This is the hour of the Shire folk. And he's like looking out of the corner of his eyes like, hey, Boromir, the halfling just stood forth. Did you catch that? Right? It happened. It just happened. Right? And it's not just Frodo. This is the hour of the Shire folk when they arise from their quiet fields to shake the towers and councils of the great how. How? This is the halfling revolution, right? This is the hour of the Shire folk when the hobbits show that they are in fact a mighty. Is this like, you know, when the Fremen rise out of the desert in Dune, right? Where no one ever took them seriously and they go on to conquer the, the galaxy, right? Is that, is that, no, it's not like that, right? It's not that everyone had underestimated the hobbits like people on, like the, you know, the Harkonnens underestimated the Fremen and, uh, uh, and, you know, and it turns out that they're like the ultimate army, right? No, that's, uh, that's not, um, that's not the case, right? How are they going to arise from their quiet fields? And what manner are they going to shake the towers and councils of the great? Through their smallness, through their humility, um, through the, what makes them, through their smallness, Right? It is their very smallness itself. It is their humility. Um, this is what... Notice, one, one of the things I think that Elrond is implying here, it's not only that Frodo himself, that this task was appointed for Frodo. It's not just that Frodo was made for this. It's like hobbits were made for this. Right? Um, yeah, exactly, uh, Bjarna Soner. Uh, the Shire folk are a repository not of hidden martial strength, but of hidden moral and spiritual strength. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yes, yes. Um, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, so, um, and they're, they're easily overlooked, Amethorn. Exactly. And that's why they're going to arise from their quiet fields to shake the towers and councils of the great. Um, they are going to become great because they are small. And again, it's hard for me to not look at this and say, this is, this is why there are hobbits in the first place, right? Um, this is not only the fulfillment of Frodo's personal destiny. This is like the destiny of the Shire, right? This is why the Shire is. Gandalf and the Dunedain have had an inkling of this, right? There's a reason Gandalf has been invested 
not just in a calculated way. He loves the hobbits and admires the hobbits on their own ground and on their own terms. And yet there's been this sense in Eriador, right, that like the hobbits are important, um, that they're worth protecting um, and sheltering even, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Michael Tobias. Uh, the 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 hour has come when the meek shall inherit Middle Earth. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yes, uh, Dolores Stroke, you're absolutely right that Frodo is a reverse burglar, right? If Bilbo was like a uh, was like a, 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 a an alternate universe burglar, right? Like an, the honest burglar who steals property in, in order to rest, in order to like establish peace and 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 make friends and uh you know restore order um uh you know if he's the honest burglar uh you're right frodo's the the unburglar right the reverse burglar um bilbo goes to steal a treasure and frodo goes to deposit one um yes yes and i, I love the ways in which the you know the returning of the ring to Mordor and the the uh, giving of the Arkenstone uh, uh, to Bard uh, is a is a a fun kind of uh, parallel in this way, um, yeah yeah, um, and yes Ashnag you are absolutely right that uh, the passage brings to mind the extraordinary irony of the help. Uh, um, thinking, you know, the way, finding a way um, that Frodo is going to find in Gollum, um, and the sense of pity that leads him in that direction. Yes, exactly. Um, Bilbo's pity and Frodo's pity are going to rule the fate of many. That's, that's, um, that's how we roll in the quiet fields of the, of the Shire, right? Um, humility, uh, humility, patience, pity. Um, and that is indeed what it's going to shake the towers and councils of the great. And that is why he is, in fact, going to find a way um, where no one else um, where no one else would. Um, and then his um, commentary. Right. Um, who of all the wise could have foreseen it? Or if they are wise, why should they expect to know it until the hour has struck? Um, this an unlikely conclusion, right? Um, he does not, um, who of all the wise could have foreseen it? Um, it's a little irony, right? Because, um, Gandalf did, <laughs> right? Who of all the wise could have foreseen it? Imagining Gandalf over there, you know, raising one of his very impressive eyebrows. Exactly. Gandalf resists the urge to raise his hand. Exactly. Right. I, you know, I, I'm not going to brag, but I kind of did actually foresee this. Um, there's a reason why I've been taking away Hobbits on Adventures uh, for some time. Uh, kind of been preparing for this moment. Uh you can thank me later. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but again, what he's pointing to, this is Elrond also, I mean, is, who's Elrond talking to here? I think he is, at this point, he has stopped talking to Frodo, or at least stopped, I mean, he is still talking to Frodo. But I don't think that these words are meant for Frodo. I think he's talking to the room. Um, and I think from this is the hour of the Shire folk, he is still talking to Frodo, and that still is designed to encourage him. But he's now addressing the room. 
This is the hour of the Shire folk, when they arise from their quiet fields to shake the towers and councils of the great. This is what's happening, folks, right? Um, uh, Boromir, don't laugh at Frodo, at Frodo volunteering. And I'm not saying that he was tempting. He was laughing because Bilbo was making a joke, and he was laughing, it was funny, and he was laughing at it. Um, uh, but uh, in case anyone is tempted to laugh, and it does, there's no evidence anyone is, is he's putting his stamp of lore master and, in a sense, prophetic approval on this. This is the way it's supposed to be. And then he is anticipating um, the objections. He's cutting off the objections before they can be voiced. Um, if anybody says, well, gosh, doesn't that seem unlikely? Like, really? The Shire folk? Um, like, that's the play here? He forestalls it, right? Who of all the wise could have foreseen it? Does it seem unlikely to you? Well, of course it does, right? Or if they are wise, why should they expect to know it until the hour has struck? Um, if you are wise, you should be surprised, or you shouldn't be surprised, or you should know that you would have been surprised, right? Um, uh, if this seems unlikely to you, if this doesn't fit with your idea of like how things are supposed to go and the way that the scripts are supposed to run, well... Maybe you're not as wise as you think you are, right? Because the truly wise don't expect to know these things until the hour has struck. Um, so who in the room is, I mean, I, I, I think that shut Galdor up, <laughs> right? And most anybody else uh, who might want to say something here. Uh, even Barmir doesn't interrupt at this point, right? Um yeah, and, and I agree, Admiral Malcontent. I suspect that Boromir's, the message in Boromir's dream will make him satisfied. I mean, yep, okay, Halfling stood forth. I'm tracking, I'm tracking. Um, yeah, exactly, Bjorning in Exile. The who among the wise is designed to humble those who would not wholeheartedly commit to the plan of having small hands take the ring to the fire. Absolutely, that's exactly, that's exactly what I think. Um, yes. Yes. Um, yes, exactly. Um, I'm going to stop there because it's late and uh, we're not going to, we will, next time we will uh, talk about the elf friends of old and how exactly um, Frodo fits in this list. Um, this is one of those things I finally think I understand. Um, I didn't understand this for many years, but I finally figured it out. I think I figured it out um, before. Uh, why Frodo gets put in that particular lineup exactly. Um, but anyway, um, we will um, uh, we will keep going. So We've got a slide and a half left, um, so we're we're great, um, and we have two sessions before Mythmoot. I am going to attain my goal of uh, of finishing the Council of Elrond by Mythmoot. It's totally going to happen. 
thanks everybody for joining me. It's field trip time, uh, and uh, so everyone is um, uh, is invited uh, to um, yes, Myth Moot this year, JJ. Um, uh, so everyone's invited to join us on our field trip uh, as we head off here. And I will say uh, good night to those who are not going to join us on the field trip. And I will say good evening, Valori. Good oh, evening. Oh, I hate it when this evening. happens. Okay. I guess I go through my weekly struggle to have my screen appropriately redrawn. There we go. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so last time we, let me get to the appropriate map. Uh, back up to the wells of Lang Flood. Okay, so last time we went up into the Mist Hollow, Mist Hollow, I should say, and I did not expect to find an actual route into the forest, but it does. Did it keep going into the forest? We kind of uh, turned around. I think it did. I think it yeah, did. So yeah, we started to see eyes, remember? But then we were stuck yeah. in the sort of cul-de-sac. Yeah. Anyway, it certainly went up to the edge of Merkwa. So we can. See, so it, it's just. It's interesting that they are. They sort of took that moment. I mean, everywhere else we're we're finding um, cliffs, right? Like we we can see Merkwood in the distance, but we can't get close to it. So it was interesting that we got at least into like the outskirts of Merkwood proper there. And can I say, Merkwood proper there was there were things I liked about Southern Merkwood. Um, you know, when it was released, like I liked the fact that I often got lost when wandering around. Um, <laughs> Because that seemed appropriate, right? I'm like, oh, I left the path, so you know that's on me. Um, but um, uh, uh, though, unlike uh, Bilbo, I could just throw myself off a high place and end up in the red circle and, and find myself again, uh, which was an option the dwarves probably would have availed themselves of if they'd had the option uh, there in uh, Mirkwood. But anyway, the point is, um, <clears throat> I I really like. One of the things that we've been seeing here in the Wells of Lang Flood is this sort of the transition. Like we're seeing, you know, down in the south, we get, you know, orcs who are coming out of the Misty Mountains. And we, we can see kind of like the, the, the river there is the frontier between the Bjorning lands and the Misty Mountain orcs who are still, you know, a force there that has been regrowing since um, as an old bazaar. And then as we get up, as we've moved up further into the Wells of Langflood here, we're beginning to see the, the Gundabad orcs coming down south. But Mist Hollow was able to kind of remind us of the Mirkwood frontier that's right there, right? So it's not just the, you know, the Misty Mountain orcs coming in from the, the you know, the south and the west and the Gundabad orcs coming down from the north. You've also got the creepy, nasty, um, much more... Uh, kind of generally disturbing corruption of Mirkwood creeping in from that direction, which is a, a wholly new dynamic. So I like the, the you know, the fungus and the troll things, right, which were different from other wood trolls and stuff. True, which uh, might also be attributed to Moria, which was dealing similar blight. Right, yeah, we saw that. We saw those same the same sort of fungi there. But but anyway, yeah, seeing like a different version of that corruption coming in from from the Mirkwood side, um, it really begins to build this kind of claustrophobic sense, right? Of um, you know, uh, the way that evil is just kind of moving in from all from all sides here. Um, yeah, and GDC, I agree. I do like how we see evidence of trade between dwarves and various other communities. We can see. I, 
because we've also been seeing that, right? We've also been seeing the um, uh, the um, the new community, you know, the new Bjorning community, and the way that things are being kind of restored in some ways. Um, Warrior Resurrection Committees dealing with the new Erebor. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so that's all. That's all. It, it's 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 interesting to kind of see that that tension as they're as they're sort of building it in here. But now tonight is the night. Let us go and find Fremsburg. Or at least the approach there too. So back to Thokvist, I think. Again. Yep. And then we're going to head, well, I'll wait till we get there and then I'll look at my map, which is a little simpler. Yes, that is an easier way to. Yes. Rather than right, and then clicking my way through the menu options there. <laughs> Okay, so we're gonna head up. To, let's first let's go direct up to um, whatever this place is, uh, Hilfseld. Hilfseld. Let's go up there, and then because because uh, I'm we were told that that's a, a good way to approach Fromsburg. Um, and we might as well uh, stop bothering uh, the warg, warg, Mister Warg's bane. What's his name again? Gal. Uh, Scotterding. Scotterding. Ah, Scotterding right, yeah. Um, he's been more than gracious uh, in his hospitality. Um, oh, he's pretty bold. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's head north. Oh, so, okay. hell, that's a very rotiric uh, suffix there. Uh, which is hell? Hild. Hild, Hild, yes. Hild. Yes, I agree. Like Middle's Hild. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Lots of which well, so I always like, like helm or head or oh. Right. Whoa. Whoa. What are those? Um, well I think they're footprints. Yeah, I think they're disturbing footprints. Yeah. Okay. T Rexes go by? Well, so um getting I hear there be dragons feel. Which is awesome when you're headed towards the lair of Skatha the Worm. Maybe those are fossilized uh, footprints of Skatha the Worm. Well, not fossilized. They've not quite had enough time to be fossilized, but, you know. There was some sort of fire involved. Uh, relics of an ancient time, stones. right? Maybe. No? Maybe. N another lovely set of waterfalls here. Okay, just tracking where we are here. All right. Um, okay. Scotha the Worm. Oh, man. I want to know about the Scotha the Worm story. Hey, look, there's a road over there. Are we near that place where the... Yeah, we're near where... Like the junction. Yeah, here's the junction. Okay. So up this way is the way up towards Arid Mithrin, right? Okay, all right, if we want to... Go up towards the Withered Heath, which will be fun someday to go up in this direction. But that's not, but it is not this day. If it was a heath, it had to be blasted. Isn't that a rule? Yeah, kind of by definition, right? It's withered, right? I mean, if it's not withered, it's not really a heath. Hmm. Ooh, a Gundabad Hill Crusher. Like one who crushes hills, or like a crusher the from hill. the hills. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He is the hill. He is the bird squad. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so but we're we're gonna carry on. I'm not gonna be tempted to go wander into the path of that troll. Heavily armored troll. Yeah, the but like, I like this. Most hat. of the ones we've seen haven't really bothered with such things. Yeah. Ooh. I'm seeing what am I seeing? An orc hold over there? Very misty mountains. Yeah, extremely misty mountains. Oh, I'm seeing ruins. Oh, yeah, definitely. ruins over there. Uh-huh. The, yeah, with definitely a goblin orc feel to this. Yeah, but there's... I don't want to fall down the cliff. Okay, that looks like a defensible spot for sure. And there's, oh yeah, classic uh, orc rope bridge with random tusks on it. Um, okay. All right. Oh, okay. Some ruins on this side. Oh, but hang on. We've got a, oh, we're almost there. Are they up yeah. in the ruins? The, uh. Those are very Arnorian-looking ones. Yeah, they kind of are. I was thinking the same thing. Except slightly less vertical. Okay, Place. right. This is where... Oh, no stable master, just a horse. This horse is in charge. So this, this guy is the master of Hillstone. Yeah, nobody's the master. He is his own stable master. So you just it's oh, not but he's still is he well he can you know you can he knows a whole bunch of different destinations though. Where is Anak? Where is Anak Korfu, Elder Slade? I don't even know where that is. Oh, up north here. Okay, there it is, right on. Got it. Get the milestone while we're here. Okay. Interesting. So he's up by Gundabad. Okay. So this horse will take us up towards the gates of Gundabad. It will take us out into the dwarf holds there in the Grey Mountains. And mm -hmm. will also take us to various points around this area. Hmm. Okay. Including this one is the one we haven't been to yet, right? Lindelby? Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Oh, and you said there's a milestone? All right, over here. Yeah, there's a milestone over here as well as some clues as to who this campsite might belong. I mean, love okay. this meat roasting. Is All that right. a rabbit? I think that, that is a rabbit. Got a brace of conies, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think that's a rabbit. Oh, I just wandered past the milestone because I got distracted by Coney. Okay. <laughs> Replacing Thought Feast. Okay. It's all in the gravy. There's a very shaggy looking horse over here. You see the NPC who's here. Interesting. No, we cannot see an NPC. Nope, I see no NPC. Just. This is. I, I was. If not for the fact that they're cooking rabbits, I would think these were just this. This, this was just the horses' camp, um, as they seem to be fully in possession of this camp. Yeah, like the horse is going to sleep in that tent. 
well, you I know. can tell you who's there if you'd like. I mean, you can obviously tell who what kind of person it would right. be. Right. I mean, we've got yeah. we we have a, a clearly Rohiric tent and shield here. Mm-hmm. Not to mention a very Rohiric looking horse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah, and as you I said, can... well, let's see. Um, it's a generic Rohiric shield, not from a particular area of Rohan. No. Um, nor does the color give anything away, as it's the green and was originally white, presumably, tent. Um, <laughs> like most tents I've ever used. Yeah, yeah. I'm um, guess with the original color. Right. So... Would you like me to tell you who's there? No, I'm keen to guess. Um, Well, I won't learn for ever so long, will I? Mm, Yeah. Yeah, you might as well tell me, because it's going to (laughs) be years before I get here with Grifflet, and uh, by then I'll have forgotten again anyway, so you might as well tell me. All right. The gentleman's name is Leothred, and he has a tag called Rohiric Scholar. Leothred. Okay. Leothred. Okay. All right. Studying the ancient history of the Rohirrim. Yeah. Right. So he's got a chest. Presumably for books or notebooks. Okay. Right. So let's think about. This, is this a mailbox? This is a mailbox. Can I just say, I love the mailboxes. The mailboxes, I never use them. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm lazy because I like have the IP, so I never use mailboxes. Yeah. But they're adorable. I just, I, I look forward to the design of the mailboxes in every area I go to. Like, it's just yeah. adorable. Everywhere we go, I mean, the mailboxes are just the sheer optimism, the 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 estel pervading that who I will cram it in this box here and hope for the best. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like who is it who comes to, which postman uh, comes by this route? Um, as Hologrow says, in case the horse needs to send a letter, you know that's that's what they. That's why the horse has a mailbox here. Um, okay. Wow, I can see my own breath. Did I used to be able to do that? Oh. There it is, again. Yeah. I'm respirating rather slowly. Uh, But, uh, yeah. Considering how long, how quickly it takes us to travel from time to time, this is almost like a deep sea diving birthday. Yeah, not surprised that. Uh, well, okay, that's really interesting. Um, probably drag up the animation if everyone's doing the actual things. Right. Yeah, I suppose it would get a little bit cloudy, maybe. Um, exactly, GDC. I like to think that Narnian is uh, in really good shape, which is improbable, all things considered, honestly, um, given his lifestyle, which is fairly sedentary. Um, apart from his weekly you excursions. Stoic, you're calm. You right, yeah, very calm, very calm. Yes. 
looking at the walls, these are the same ruin. These ruins are the same exact style as we saw down in, what's it called? Um, that other place, Limlock. Um, we see the same style of arches, right? That kind of triple arch with a keystone at the top um, without any, you know, figuring, which kind of looks like a, um, which kind of looks like a, a, you know, the Arnorian ruins, but without any of the iconography that we saw there. Um, yeah, like a really wide sort of Dominican arch there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This... Huh. Is this like an interior and exterior wall? No. Yeah. Um, yeah, this looks yeah. like a kind of gatehouse sort of thing, doesn't it? Yeah. Or at least a bottleneck. Yeah. So this yeah, does yeah, look we have like our, it's, yeah, yeah. wide traffic and then our more defensible smaller door. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like a... Sorry, I'm just trying to go around without getting attacked by a moose. I'm wanting to see it from the other side. Not sure I'm going to be able to. No, I'm not, because this is on a nice, well defense, you know, easily defensible position. Um, yeah. Oh, oops. I'm now officially lost in the bushes. Okay, here we are. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, why is my question? Um, hmm what sort of like you know outpost or whatever is well it definitely has something to do with the river yeah it would seem to be okay well so here we've got this big bridge oh yeah Ooh, missed that yeah well we came right up around the corner to look at it okay so you've got this defensive outpost over there this big huge sweeping stone bridge Across this chasm, which is really interesting, unless they had like a wooden span in the middle. I mean, this is like a Turin bridge. This is like a no way you can throw down this bridge um, if uh, somebody comes attacking from this side, right? Which I mean, ruins up. Yeah, erecting a bridge this big almost goes so far as to. Well, it certainly diminishes, but almost to eliminate the defensive advantages of this, well, you know, this rocky promontory, which is otherwise so heavily defensible, but with a big old. Yeah, I, I guess bridge. we could conclude it wasn't a defensive bridge. It was a, it was a joining bridge between communities. Yeah, I mean, they clearly felt although they built their fortress on this really. Uh, highly defensible promontory uh, they clearly felt secure and weren't worried about it see here I was admiring that where would it go that ruin over there on the southern tip of the promontory and then good land is that Gundabad? No. Oh my. How did I miss that? Yeah. Well, because it looks like a mountain is why. Where yeah, are we? it looks like um, Yeah, I think it's like the sun uh, 
the moonlight or something or whatever, the light just changed. Well, that's the direction of Gundabad, but wow. Okay. Wow. This is well, a good fences make good neighbors kind of town then. Yeah. Obviously, they thought they needed the bridge in case they needed the extra numbers or something. And we've got these huge waterfalls showing that this is a big old not just this is just a mountain this is a big old plateau mm -hmm. with the water running Possibly down with off like it into the lake, lowlands. yeah you know, like a yeah. basin lake behind it or something yeah maybe boy i wonder if the runoff used to be poison like it is in angmar now right yeah not glowing green which is nice okay so it seems clear that as far as these ruins, that is this stone that we saw in that building over there and in this bridge, that that was um, this castle down here on the southern tip of the promontory seems to be the largest. There's several other areas, right? I mean, we got ruins all over the place, right, behind us. Um, you know, down to the left over here, straight across at the other side of the bridge over here, just to the north of that, over there, further on, further on. I mean, this whole place had strongholds all over it, um, this whole central promontory. Um, and yet you can see even from here the radically different style, different stone. That looks like dwarf work up there, but I can't yeah, be quite sure from this difference. Yeah, I mean, from a distance, it looks like it. It, it looked more ominous when I just saw the shapes. Though it's the up, it's the most upward of all the dwarf architecture we've seen. Like, that must you know, be it. I must have thought it was evil because it was heading skywards rather than just sort of sitting in clustered among the mountains. Or plastered against the walls of the of the mountains. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, sort of nested. And yeah, like it's standing in, in defiance. I mean, how many times have you seen dwarf architecture with a skyline? You know, I mean, never. Except for that's like not thorns. a thing. That's not a big feature yeah. anyway. Not a common feature. Even, no, even Thornsgate, it was cradled by that big uh, Oxton Canyon. Exactly. Exactly. There wow. were some. It does make. Yeah. It makes you wonder what, whether the the men in this village and the dwarves were actually on friendly terms. This looks like a yeah. little middle finger sticking out of the mountain. Well, yeah. I mean, at least a, a really, I mean, a strong set of, you know, arms crossed across the chest as you stare down at them. You know, I mean, it's, it's. Uh, well, they could have, I mean, they could have carved that. We've seen that. They could have carved that. Right. They could have actually made, made that. Yeah, exactly. Giant exactly. dwarf flicking off the townspeople. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it's interesting. Okay, well, um, so we're out of time tonight. I don't want to keep people too late. Um, next time, we will explore the... We'll go across the little orc bridge, which is our, our actual means of entry here into the promontory. Um, so we'll start up here next time, and then we'll go over onto the promontory, explore the ruins there. Um, looks like there's plenty to see to try to get a sense... I'll try to get a sense of the promontory there. And most importantly, I want to figure out what it tells us about Fram. Um, as we uh, as we explore that promontory, and then at some point after that, we have to 
get up into those pine woods up there, as Frodo might say, except it's to just to explore the 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 dwarf holds up above it. Um, so okay, cool. That's really interesting. All right. So many ruins to explore next time. This is delightful. So uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us. We have lots of fun ruins in our future here. Um, and, uh, you know, as we finish, the, it's still gonna, we still have some time when we finish the Council of Elrond before we actually threaten to head south uh, and oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, go down into Eregion. Um, we definitely will have to return to the story uh, area, but um, but as I say, yeah. we still have uh, a number of uh, weeks before we actually get out of Rivendell in the in the book. So, um, yeah. <laughs> oh, Hologrow, we're definitely going to go to Windleby as well. Um, we'll see. I kind of suspect. I mean, again, that's it looks pretty far away. I'm not sure. I mean, I think that's up on the border there. I, I'm not sure we can get there and stay on this map up up on the hills. I mean. Um, so, yeah, we'll see, um, we'll see how they, and we might have to put off going there until we finish the Wells of Langflood here, pop out to Windleby, and then head back north and see if we can get to the bottom of the dwarf ruin mystery there, mm-hmm. the dwarf skyscrapers up there on the hill. Um, <laughs> all right, anyway, um, cool, so, uh, thanks everyone for joining us this week, what a fun set of discoveries here this week, and I look forward to uh, discovering more as we uh, as we move forward. So thanks, everybody, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now. <laughs>